All right, welcome back to We Want More, the podcast where I, Stephen Zuber, am not so much guiding as exploring the work of Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality with my co-host, Brian Deacon. How's it going, Brian? It's good. I'm the one that's discovering blindly what's going on, as you already know everything that is going to happen. (laughs) And how did your discovery feel during Chapter 7, Reciprocity? I hated Harry Potter in this in this chapter. I I've been like going back and forth. So I you know I so I'm honestly puzzled about where we're going with this because I've been like oh I don't know I don't I'm not sure how I feel about this. But no, he was kind of a douchebag in this chapter. So I'm I'm really not sure how I'm going with this. <laughs> what 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 in particular? Um, or do you want to go through the chapter and we'll get to the part where I guess yeah. We, I think the the broader theme is that he's kind of a, a what was the word I used for like Vulcan. Um, but not now. See, Vulcan would just be fine. So the broader theme is that he's kind of a condescending douchebag. And I, <laughs> and I really can't tell yet, like, is this on purpose? Is this part of the story? Or is this just the story of a condescending douchebag? Or, I don't know yet. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into it. So um, at least it starts out heartwarmingly enough, right? He's being dropped off by his exactly. parents at King's Cross. And um, there's this nice emotional exchange with his mom. Uh, about I know it's funny how like in every book like this is the scene that's in every single book so it's like how many times have we done the same scene I bet like the guys when they were actually filming the movie were like getting tired of the same scene themselves well like, they kind how many of... times have we been to nine and three quarters in all the movies I seven probably seven <laughs> I don't I don't remember all the t- all the ones in the movies so, I mean I think they did them differently in some of them like in the second one they fly the car and frankly, they weren't. Yeah, no, they were never as heartwarming. It was more just like finally I get to leave those douchebags and yeah. go do my thing. I mean, some of them were. I think they probably after a while they were doing it to just, at least in the books. I think because I've seen the, I read the books more recently than I've seen any of the movies. Um, I think they sort of like anchor the story, like you know, like it always starts at you know King's Cross. I mean, it doesn't start start, but like that's always like something that frames the beginning of it, and then and then it's like a variation of like okay, how are we going to do the first day of school this in this book? So. I mean, you certainly couldn't do this one. Uh, you couldn't have the HPMOR without having the scene at King's Cross. Yeah. And it's almost like, okay, how are we going to do this one? And I like it as as so. contrast, like I said, to the way that, um, you know, it, it's less of like a great, I get to get away from my abusive step-parents and go actually, yeah. you know, have, have an emotional moment. Um, so, yeah, there's the nice moment with his mom. Um, the, the The bit with his dad was a little less like, I, I don't know. I found it as emotional, but it was more reserved. Yeah, that one was a, sort of interesting because there's a lot of this where he's, uh, I mean, this was a very, you know, familiar scene of like, okay, fathers and sons are uncomfortable showing emotions around each other. Um, but it's sort of like it it fit well with, like Harry's already pretty like, you know, stuffy and very, you know, frontal lobe. Um, so it's like, oh, well, you can see where this came from. Um, but it also is like sort of very human. Like this is, you know, this is how all families are. Like the mom gets all boohoo and, you know, and the father and son have a hard time figuring out how to say goodbye because things are weird. Yeah. So that part felt very real. Yeah. And I mean, there's, I think, you know, Harry's throat was hoarse when he's like, you know, because his dad asks him, did I, did you get enough books? And he, he knew the answer, which was, you could never have enough books. Um, mm-hmm. but then he, you know, he held him and choked up. It was emotional. And I think, yeah, you're right. There's the whole, um, kind of archetype relationship with the parent of, you know, the mom gets to cry and the whatever, but I found it a, a nice warm moment. I think, uh, it's just their different dynamics. Um, 
you know, the dad, the dad is, seem, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And there, there was, there was still the, that element with like this, he's this little adult in an 11 year old body. Cause he's, you know, he's still being very businesslike with how he's saying goodbye to his parents. And, you know, in some ways that, that sometimes plays off as he's this sort of like mischievous little, little imp thing. I think there was a kind of a lot of that, the, the way he interacted with McGonagall and Diagon Alley, but, um, but yeah, so there still was sort of this level of him kind of managing his parents, especially when he's like, oh, they want to start hearing about the trouble I got into in Diagon Alley, so gotta go. Yeah, I thought that was, they played that off kind of cute. Um, there was the, yeah, so when he's, when he's packing up to leave, uh, like, there's the whole, um, <laughs> you know, how, how did you, oh, because he had said, oh, I'll have plenty so of help over there. Don't worry about it. They love me over there. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And oh, well, mom can tell you about it. And he's like, wait, uh, what? And there's, Yeah, because yeah, I killed that whole evil wizard guy. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> Am I going to go? And his mom- That wasn't actually what they got in trouble over there or what he, what they were starting to freak out about wasn't it something about like something about the trouble he caused in Diagon Alley or Green yeah or something? it was like did, did McGonagall give you instructions and he was like no she might have been distracted and they're like wait what what would you do and oh that's right yeah. he says maybe about as bad as the incident with the science project and uh, then they both kind of uniformly kinda like freak out like this, yeah this is and that like the science project thing is this sort of off-camera thing for us to just sort of imagine what that was yeah it's it's just a sort of a back background joke that time with the giraffe and the Winnebago <laughs> um and then he's I, I just like his departure it kind of goes back into him being you know he's like you said still kind of uh adultish but I, there's some comic relief as he's like look I, there's no time I gotta run and she's the mom's you know how bad was it and uh I can't talk about it for reasons of national security <laughs> is what his thought was but um then of course uh, the he talks into uh, or he runs into the Weasleys as per tradition, Weasleys, yeah. um, exactly. And Molly tells him how to get through, and <laughs> George or Fred, whichever it is, tells him you know don't think of an elephant while you're running through it. And I, it's just I like there's just some comic relief yeah, in the departure there. There's, that gets to one of the one of the things I had thought about was uh, and uh, and I had in our show notes you, you saw I, I pasted in, where he's he's a. Uh, He's starting to fret about, oh, wait, so if I don't believe that I'm going to get through the wall, then I'm not going to get through the wall. And he, you know, starts getting all in his head about, about well, what does that mean? And uh, let me I think, read that little, what he says. So Harry opened his eyes and stumbled to a halt, feeling vaguely dirtied by having made a deliberate effort to believe something. Um, so, and, and that obviously sounds like it totally fits in with, with all the, you know, ideas that we're going through with rationality. Um but it reminded me, I actually have hanging up in my, my house for being a theoretically grown-ass man, has a lot of comic book posters and other nerd memorabilia. And so when I'm hanging up in my bathroom, I've got the uh, um, the Fox Mulder poster from X-Files of I Want to Believe, which has always been this kind of, uh, like, had this, like, layers of meaning for me. And this is actually one of the things that I think about when I put it in there is this, um, and I think this book is going to be talk is kind of going at the idea a lot that there is some part of us that wants to believe stuff, uh, both in some sort of like spiritual religious sense, but also just sort of like the pattern recognizing parts of our brain. Like there's something that wants to, you know, find something bigger and believe in it in spite of whether or not it makes any sense. And that's what always the, the thing from like the X-Files was that was always this weird, like you didn't think about it very hard, but Fox Mulder was basically saying, I want to believe in a thing that's not very believable. 
Um, and that's always like, I haven't really been able to like draw, like what's that all add up to and it's greater meaning in life, but it just seems like this really sort of fascinating thought that, you know, keeps bringing itself back up is what is that about us that, you know, it's almost even there's something about, I mean, it's, it's what feeds conspiracy theories. It's what, you know, when people are trying to, you know, chase their own sense of, you know, spirituality, it's, there's this part of us that wants to think that something that isn't is, um, and that like proactively wants to think, to believe in a thing that's not true. Yeah. I, I like that distillation a lot and it explains exactly why Harry feels dirtied by having made yeah. a de- deliberate effort to believe something because yeah. all of that and is, the thing is I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say all of that is kind of antithetical to the approach of rationality, which is, I don't yeah. want to believe anything. I, I will believe what the world is as best I can. And to the extent that I, I learn new stuff, I'm going to change what I believe. But if I'm motivated to believe something, I'll be reluctant to uh, relinquish a, an, an incorrect belief, right? Yeah. And that's where, where my brain keeps going back and forth as we're reading this and I'm, you know, picking up on these, you know, the, these big major themes in this story is so there's there's all those things that are, you know, rationally true and and so and this is an interesting way to look at like, okay, how do we decide on the things that we choose to believe in? But that's like a like a lowercase belief. Like what do you what things do you believe are factually true? Um, and what I'm what what it keeps kicking around in my head and what I'm wondering where we're gonna go in this story with it is all of those things are true and they're all they're all are all kinds of problems that society has had and history has had with you know with people being irrational but there's also like i'm wondering to what extent this is going to come back to differentiating between like using these methods of rationality as a way to you know kind of accurately you know dissect what your lowercase b beliefs about your world are versus knowing at what point it's appropriate to put that away you know like to to put the accountant in your brain back in your pocket um, to know, like, what are the appropriate, like, emotionally healthy levels to deal with these things? Because, you know, going to a funeral and lecturing the, you know, dead relatives about how, you know, life always comes to an end and, you know, get over it because, you know, your emotions are not rational right now. That's kind of stuff like, how do you fit this in? Because it's not, um, these ideas are good and valid for trying to evaluate and, and, you know, and being introspective about how do you look at the universe and what kinds of things do you decide are true and how are you arriving at those conclusions. But I think it's easy to get lost in that as uh, because all of those things are internally consistent, um, that that is the end of the conversation. Um, so I'm just wondering, I don't, I don't know to what extent that is going to be coming up in this story, but that's what it keeps kicking around for me. And sort of, what, and then when we get back to that idea of I want to believe, like those are things that is a part of us that's really natural in a lot of people, and it's not necess- It is factually wrong most of the time, but that doesn't make it inappropriate. And knowing when you're being factually, when you're following that on an emotional level, and knowing how to not be confused about that is is important. But it doesn't mean that we should discourage those urges in ourselves. I'm excited to to keep working through this. I think one of the goals that Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality has is to to so there's this you've described um, without using the word there's there's sort of a, a trope of the straw Vulcan, which is the person at a funeral who says, "Well, people are just atoms and everyone dies." Blah 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 blah, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, the unfortunately I think this is just sort of historically why it's behind the word rationality is that rationalist was already um, 
kind of taken from back in the old days of philosophy. Well, I guess whatever the 1600s, but it, I'll leave all that aside other than to say that's, that's interesting. And I think that's, that's a, a preconception makes it sound like it's wrong. That is the common viewing of this kind of framework of thinking. And I think part of what this story does is to explain, no, here's, here's how a rationalist thinks. And it might not be exactly how you think it is. Yeah. I, you know, I hope that's where we're going because so what do you call it? He's called a straw Vulcan, like the straw man. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Uh, so, but right now, at least through chapter seven, Harry is totally that douchebag. So what I'm hoping is that, I mean, if this, if this is the stuff that we're working through in this story, then this is really cool. Cause I'm like really into this now is like, oh my God, why is he so much more of a douchebag than Ken and Harry? Um, that's a good question. So if that's what if, <laughs> if that's what we're working through, then this is really cool. This is really well done. If if we're just you know if it's going to be all of this story about you know trying to see how it's okay for Harry to act like this condescending douchebag, then it's going to be less fun. <laughs> I I knew this would be a challenging chapter, and that's why I wanted to do it on its own, even though it's not you know the longest one. Uh, might be one of the longest we've covered, but it definitely there's a lot to talk about in it. Um, yeah. yeah. So Harry, this is the one that's got me like the most like keyed up. So we'll see. No, no, totally. So speaking of Harry's uh, intolerable douchebaggery, being um, a douchebag, you you had some strong feelings about what the author decided to do with the character Ron. Yes, I and actually, and that was the moment where I'm like, okay, no, I'm getting off here. Where I'm like, no, if he's going to like call, so he, so when he first meets Ron, it's, we we don't spend too much time actually with Ron, but he like very quickly decides that Ron's an idiot, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with him, and then that, and then that sort of you know departs is when he and Ron run into Draco, and uh, he just, and that's sort of like how he's able to get away from Ron, and they they reproduce that scene. Uh, from the from the original book, where when Ron and Draco and Harry meet for the first time, Draco says, "Oh, you shouldn't hang around with these kind of riffraff," and Harry says something like, "I know the kind of people I want to hang out with," sort of implying that, you know, Draco is not one of the ones he wants to hang out with. And so they they spin that around, and Ron is big. I think uh, he says Ron tries to go, "Oh my God, you don't want to hang out with that guy," and Harry said, "Like, well, I don't want to hang out with somebody that tells me who I can hang out with." Yeah, he um, takes kind of the reverse yeah, line from the original version. Um, yeah. But yeah, where I got, I'm like, real, and this is where I'm thinking like, okay, this has to be on purpose because it was so like flatly unlikable. Like, I, I mean, he might as well have just have kicked a puppy, like where he's just sort of snickering at Ron for being an idiot. I'm like, oh, really, Harry? You're, you're, you're an asshole. Yeah, they're, they're, so, <laughs> so that, and this is where I'm back. I'm like, okay, this this part has got to be on purpose. But so I'm I'm not clear yet to what extent is this kind of the meat of what we're supposed to be looking at here, or is this just sort of like, oh yeah, he can be kind of a jerk sometimes. But yeah, this is for me they they like aha where I'm like, okay, these things that have been sort of like low level, like not sitting right. I'm like, okay, this is you, you know you can't do that to my boy Ron. He went from full plausible deniability <laughs> to full asshole, huh? Yes. Well, let's uh, let's pull out a couple examples and talk about them. So yeah, some of the the particular lines that Harry throws at Ron. Well, I mean, the first thing was when you know, like when he was messing with the person in Diagon Alley and messing with McGonagall about you know, are you really Harry Potter? Um, 
you know, Harry, Harry's kind of fed up and he's like, not this again. And he just retorts with, uh, you know, I have no log- logical way of knowing that for certain. My parents raised me to believe that my name was Harry James Potter Evans Varus. And many people, many people here have told me that I look like my parents. I mean, my other parents, but Harry frowned, realizing for all I know, there could easily be spells to polymorph a child into a specified appearance. And Ron says, er, what, mate? And then Harry thinks, oh, not headed for Ravenclaw, I take it. Um, and then... See, not cool, man. Cool, Not cool, man. Yeah. I'm just... I'm Maybe this is a bit of a litmus test. I think there's a few things that this this is doing. Um, so he does get... He, the, the author does kind of continue to play more uncharitably with Ron, where um, Harry grabs a scarf and then puts it on and, you know, hides his face. And he says, all right, how do I look? Like, not like Harry Potter? Uh, his He closed his mouth, which had been open. Not really, Harry. And very good. However, so as not to obviate the point of the whole exercise, you'll henceforth me address me as Mr. Spoo. Okay, Harry. <laughs> is there some like background to that? Um, I'm not sure what Spoo... Mr. You Spoo. know, there's a million references in this story, and I'm sure that's something, but mm-hmm. I think he was just grabbing something ridiculous for the point of the story, but I bet that's some nod to something. But the point is then, then Ron says, Okay, Harry. <laughs> he says the force is not particularly strong with this one. I do like these little call-outs. Yeah, and then okay, Mr. Spoo. Ron, Ron stopped. I can't do that. It makes me feel stupid. Well, that's not just a feeling. Uh, so you're right. Harry is being in his head a complete dick to Ron, right? So I think there's a few things that this this chapter's doing with that. Um, well, first and foremost, the author put in a note at the top. I know you're reading this in the Kindle edition, which I'm not sure if includes the author's notes from the top of the chapters. No, it did. Yeah, it had this. Yeah, the, the, uh, the part about, hey, I know this might be seen as bashing. Yeah, so what I'm guessing, so the quote that, that Eliezer put on here was, I feel the need to disclaim that certain parts of this chapter are not meant as bashing. It's not that I have a grudge. The story just writes itself. And once you start dropping anvils on a character, it's hard to stop. Um, so what I imagined was going on in, in the author's head when he wrote this interaction was I think he wanted to have Ron from the books as not the brightest kid in Gryffindor, an 11-year-old, right? Um, and then have him interact with Harry James Potter Evans Varus. And how would that conversation go? And I sort of see that this is how that would turn out. Um, what that unfortunately means for this story is that Ron doesn't get the same level up that Harry got. <laughs> and that apparently that Draco got. Draco is, you know, so far an interesting character, right? Yeah, he seems like he's roughly, you know, because you know, the original Draco is not particularly stupid or smart. He's just kind of regular. And this, this Draco seems sort of the same, except in some ways more likable, but also still totally psychotic so <laughs> yeah at least yeah i don't know i mean this is a, this, so there's the like okay we're making harry being kind of the wonderkind and we're okay even if we're gonna you know make ron a little bit dumber there's still this like okay in the universe where harry is even smarter and ron is dumber none of that requires harry being a douche about it um you know, because I've been told a couple times in my life that I'm pretty smart, but going around and reminding other people of the fact doesn't win you any friends. Um, so this, and that's this is where I'm like, uh, where are we going with this? That's true. And part of that, I, I was part of what I was thinking earlier. This is where I, I don't. I'm really not sure where this is going because I don't know. Like when I talk about like nerd world, I, I want to make sure it's fully understood. These are my people. Um, but there is this part of nerd world that is really distasteful i think because it's you know to me because it's so easy for me to see you know the same urges in myself to do it and i'm kind of beating around the bush trying to talk about that that weird little like 
I'm smarter than you, you dumb kids thing. Um, and this is where I'm not sure, like, is this being put here as a plot thing that we're going to work on? Or is this just how the author is? Because I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Uh, and that's I think that's why I keep like harping on this. Why it's like, you know, nagging at me is because this, I mean, it is something that's like such like a like hits home kind of thing for me. Um, and I think also because I am of the, the these are my I am of this society. I can see, I I am like this often. Um, I do not like being like that at all. And it seems totally plot both both versions seem totally plausible to me. Like this is a thing that is part of the story that we're going to talk about versus no, this is just how this guy is. And this is kind of okay. And he's like maybe moderately aware of it, but not really sure. So that's why I, that's why I keep like latching onto it. It's like, Oh, what are we doing with this? Cause so this was another little example of, you know, okay, you're smarter than the guy that, you know, you might be taller than him too, but that didn't have much to do with your personal you know, <laughs> yeah. contribution. And I, I think it makes sense that this jumps out. This is a pretty radical departure from where we were setting up from, you know, the, if you're coming from the original story. And I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. And one of them is that, like we talked about, I think in the first episode where if, if the author, if we, if we take the charitable view that the author knows what he's doing, then if you feel a certain way, that might, that's probably on purpose. Um, and then, that's what I could, like, this is totally working. If this is what he's doing, he's totally got me. And on. then, of course, then the question is, like, like why? I am on the And we, we, we might not have <laughs> that, that yet. That's what I'm like, oh, then what are we doing? Yeah. It's worth having that in mind, but I think... Yeah, and that's what I've totally wound up about. I'm like, oh, where are we going with this? Yeah, and... Like, so, I mean, this would be, it's going to be a great... But if, if this is, like, part of his master plan, then he's totally got me. And I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up and applaud. So. Well, we'll put that in the, the prediction notes, which reminds <laughs> me of... Um, you then they move on to Quidditch, and you'd said, "What do I get for pre- correcting or pre- predictably, bleh, correctly predicting the uh, the Quidditch complaint?" And in the in the show notes, I just put a little picture of Reddit Silver. Um, <laughs> I get Reddit Silver. So yeah, you know, I've never actually gotten Reddit Silver. This so. this is that like hand drawn one before Reddit Silver was a thing, <laughs> where it's just some crappy hand drawn picture. So, no, yeah, he, Harry correctly points out that Quidditch is a joke and that as far as a sport goes, it's complete bullshit. I, I liked it in the canon version. I wonder, has anybody ever, has anybody ever asked, how do you say her last name? Is it Rowling? I think it's Rowling, but I don't think she cares. Rowling. Has it, has, is, is she on the record anywhere talking about the rules of Quidditch? Because I've always wanted, like, because I would just imagine from her point of view, she'd be like, get over it. I'm sure she is. She's notorious <laughs> on Twitter be, for, like dropping a bunch of knowledge bombs about the Harry Potter universe that uh, weren't in the books. Um, Most infamously that up until muggles invented plumbing, the classmates or the students and teachers would just shit on the floor and spell it away and spell it away. My biggest problem with that isn't how dumb it is. Cause even like a thousand years ago, people were using pots. Uh, My biggest problem is that Hogwarts was built with plumbing, right? That was that oh, was a true. gigantic plot point of the second book. So it's like she forgot that when she made this thing up. But was it built with plumbing, or I mean, it had plumbing. Uh, the the, the serpent, plot, the basilisk from the second book, mm-hmm. seemed to use the plumbing, which was which was there, um, unless they managed to magic yeah, so in plumbing, plumbing and not find the chamber of secrets. And the entrance was in a bathroom. So bathrooms ex- existed yeah. when they built Hogwarts. I'm just gonna just that's that's I don't care if Rowling disagrees. Yeah. That's my 
my gripe with it. But well, maybe she, like, but maybe that maybe the shitting on the floor era of wizardry predates Hogwarts, or has, has Hogwarts existed as long as wizards have existed? I'm she not, had I'm said not that kind of this was a Hogwarts thing, but we're getting pretty far afield from methods of rationality. <laughs> um, I think I, I don't remember how long she said Hogwarts was around, but back to this story where were we um so yeah quidditch is i think as far as quidditch goes in the the canon version it was meant to be a game that harry could be the most important player at right i think you and i talked about this um yeah yeah so it is what it is but on the, and that's pretty much that's pretty much what harry says in this chapter is like it sounds like what how did he put it it sounds like it was designed for the the some king's idiot son rich, for some rich yeah for the king's idiot son that's right <laughs> and then he's like now that i thought about it that was a surprisingly good hypothesis you know put the kid on the broom and tell him to catch the shiny thing uh, so exactly well yeah actually now that you say i think it wasn't draco i think draco was a seeker in the movies. he was yeah and probably in the book too um and so it, again in, in the the wonderful young adult uh fantasy story it made sense you've got this sports rivalry to go with this real rivalry and it was a whole fun thing but um harry james potter evans Varys isn't standing for the nonsense of quidditch which um ron <laughs> true to himself is super pissed about that and uh harry has a line here that i like and this this could be a good bumper sticker um you know ron says if you don't like quidditch you don't have to make fun of it and harry says if you can't criticize you can't optimize I I highlighted that as a good example of my idea, like being knowing when it's appropriate to put it away. Where it's like, yes, you are absolutely correct in every logical way about the shortcomings of Quidditch, and why are you choosing this moment to be a dick about it? Because you just learned about it, I guess. All right, let's. <laughs> exactly. That's what I know. It's like you know, being correct doesn't mean you're being nice. That's true. I, maybe the way to think about it is. If you were 11 and, you know, I guess it's hard to, you know, it's hard to rewind well, yeah, your brain to being that kind of This is an 11-year-old being a douche. Yeah, so. that's fair. All right. Well, we'll figure out if that was on purpose but, or yeah, not or what's, what the hell's wrong with Harry later. So. I think that, that, goes, that goes all. That's just part of the whole melange that is this chapter. <laughs> I mean, to me, the... Of Harry's personality. I remember when I first read this, I was bummed that Harry and Ron weren't going to be a good team like they were in the canon version. Um, for what it's worth, uh, I am obviously very happy with how this story goes. So, like, that didn't ruin the story for me. Um, but I do, I do remember oh, no, being I turned that, off like, by the that. fact that we're like writing. It, I think it's just another yeah, way to differentiate. But the fact that this isn't Harry Potter that you that you know. Yeah, and this isn't going to be that story. And I think it's totally interesting that we're that we're writing Draco into a much more central role. I think that's that's really cool. So I mean, yeah, it seems that not way. like oh really cool we're going to like Draco, but I'm like oh where are we going with this? This is so that part's super interesting. I like that. Yeah. So then then they have that interaction where Harry decides yeah. that you know I get to decide who I, who I want to hang out with, and I feel like it's weird that you who doesn't know me, you know, he even says I appreciate that you're trying to be protective of me, but I'm kind of capable of making the judgment on my on my mm-hmm. own. So see ya. Um, and uh, Harry and Draco catch up. They talk about how Draco managed to spin that whole thing in the robes shop into getting an ice cream from his dad. Um, oh, yeah. And. Then he talks about how he's had lessons on manipulating people. And he's like, of course, I'm a Malfoy. Uh, and the book that Harry cites, uh, Robert Cialdini's Influence, Science, and Practice, I have read. Um, uh, the fourth edition is available yeah. on paperback on Amazon for a penny. So 
it, <laughs> it was fun. It has like little exercises at the end of each chapter. It's written in the form of like a self-defense book of here are the six principles of influence that science has been able to, to pin down as far as psychological tools that people will use against you to try and hustle you. And chapter two is reciprocity, the name of this chapter. So the, you know, classic examples are like, uh, you know, free samples from stands at the mall, or they used to do this a lot in airports, uh, you know, like the, the, the Krishnas would hand you flowers and then ask for a gift. Or if you're on the 16th Street Mall, you'll sometimes get monks who will like hand you, a, you know, like a Bhagavad and then ask for a donation. Mm-hmm. So that sort of stuff. In Cabo, they'll, they'll come and uh, hand you jello shots for free until they come back later and make you pay oh, for them. Well, that's, that's a little different. That's more like strong arming. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, remember that stuff you got earlier? Well, here's your bill. Anyway, the where were we in the story? So I did. I remember that. So when Draco was talking about like, well, yeah, my father taught me how to, you know, hustle people. Is it? And I, I don't know if the wording was the same. Well, because he, when he talks about it, like being about getting an ice cream or whatever, it reminded me specifically of there was a point where Harry decided he was basically hustling McGonagall. Over, I can't. I think it was about being able to um, get the money for the trunk out of Gringotts. But it reminded me. I'm like, oh, so you know, Draco's talking about how if he does just the right thing, he can get what he wants out of people. And I'm like, that's pretty much what Harry was. You know, Harry like set as his goal. I'm going to get McGonagall. Let me get the trunk. And how do I go about doing that? And that's an interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because it didn't occur to me until you mentioned that. That when Harry did that with McGonagall, he got what he wanted, but it freaked him out so much that he basically, you know, had a. If he didn't throw up, he almost did, right? Whereas when... Was that the reason? I think it was the stress of, yeah, that was, it was after that point where he he runs off and pretend like, you know, excuse me, I'm going to go use the restroom and goes have a mini freak out. Yeah. Whereas when Draco did it, he, his dad was like, congratulations, let me buy you an ice cream. And I think that really shows if you want to make a kid into a manipulative little monster, when they successfully manipulate you and... You know, because it's, I guess it's fair to assume that as, as cunning as Draco is, he, he gets it all from his dad, right? So yeah. when his dad re- recognizes that, he's like, oh, this was a manipulation game. Well done, son. I'm going to buy you an ice cream. Well, of course, you're going to reinforce that behavior, right? So yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, Harry had a had a different reaction to winning a, a, a confrontation that way than Draco did. So... Yeah, yeah, I guess that clears it up because I was never clear when, because he did get like super, you sort of like, when you sort of collapse after the crisis is over, was was his reaction to that uh, interaction with McGonagall. But I wasn't clear at the time that I read it, like what caused that for him. So yeah, we were, we talked about it, but we were, it's not exactly explicit. I think it was just kind of the I'm dominate. I'm trying to challenge authority, and um, it was just when he was doing that while clear headed, it made him uncomfortable. I think. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Let's see. So next up in the chapter, this is fun, and it's not necessarily a big plot point, but the comed tea, where if you drink yeah, a can, I mean, com- I you're guess guaranteed to comedy. yeah comedy. Um, <laughs> comedy. If you drink once per can, you're guaranteed to spit take basically because you're gonna be so surprised. Hmm. And Harry's like, no, fuck that. I, th- that's impossible. No, it's not. That must be weird for the guy that sells them because he's sitting there drinking it. Like he has to know something's gonna happen. Does he do that all day? Yeah. Get surprised like eight times. At a least day. it's nice enough to dissolve, and I'm guessing it comes out of your nose and stuff too. Like, oh yeah, it, yeah, it evaporates that. or something right after. Because I mean, yeah, fuck doing that all day and having that be your job. If if you're just you know, the worst, <laughs> just nasal congestion imaginable. But if it if it magics away after a few seconds, then not a big deal. I mean, so th- I mean, this 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 whole interaction with Draco is kind of the meat of this whole chapter, and I think everything else is sort of a setup for 
you know, to bring us to this thing. Yeah. Um, with how he's interacting with Draco, and it's, it's it kind of hits it on several levels of okay. So when we'll get a, get into this a little more, but there's like the okay, Draco's this. Well, I was going to say sociopath, but he specifically gets into like, no, he's not a sociopath. He's just evil, and it doesn't require being a sociopath to explain this behavior on Draco's part. But there's sort of that. There's the way he, you know, deals with the manipulation. There's the whole power uh, play that Draco plays on him, and then he plays back on Draco. So I think, I mean, that sets up. I think this is the meat of of what's going on in the in the chapter. Yeah, and I've never had the opportunity to do this in real life. Like, so they they exchange very personal thoughts about like their fathers or something to each other, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Hey, let's fast track to friendship and do this on purpose." Now, I've I've been a part of of conversations where it happens to go personal very quickly with a new person, and. Mm-hmm. You know, you leave the conversation an hour later feeling like you're you're close to the person that you just met, or at least I will. Mm-hmm. Although I've never set it up beforehand by saying, all right, let's tell each other secrets. Yeah. I don't know if it would be as effective then, but uh, it, you know, for the... It's, it was it was kind of interesting, very, you could tell very on purpose, but that didn't take away from it that, that it's this, you know, psycho evil dude, Draco, who is, and it seems pretty clear that like, oh, this is like new information to Harry. Like he understood it from the, like the cold manipulative part, but it was almost like Draco was teaching, you know, people skills to Harry in, in a not entirely invalid way. Because it was sort of like this new concept to Harry that like, oh, you tell me something personal, I tell you something personal. What a novel concept. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. It is. Um, it, the convert, so like the, when I was first reading this chapter, and we're getting to this point, so they, they Harry's testing the comment T, and he sees the Quibbler headline, and then he's like, I'm going to murder mm. whoever wrote that. And Draco says, not a him, a her, and an 11-year-old girl. And Harry is like, oh, okay, well, you know, I, I'm not going to murder her. And then, you know, I, I remember my first read, man, and even on subsequent reads, it still gets me. Like, the you're, you're coming down from being... Uh, or I, I am when I was first reading this, my experience was I was coming down from like, okay, I guess it's not going to be Ron. And let's see where this conversation with Draco goes. And the line that is just chilling and freaks. It was very well done. It, it was, you're like, it was very well done. What? The, what? Um, <laughs> and it, and Harry's uh, internal thought process is a lot like what I was feeling where it's just like, you know, holy crap on a stick. I'm going to, I'm, I'm freaking out. Anyway. So what Draco says is as soon as I'm old enough, I'm going to rape her. I know. So you're like, Oh, okay. That's where we're going. All right. (laughs) It was well done because I, I certainly wasn't expecting that. It, it surprised me too. And I shouldn't be doing too much of the talking. What was, what was your thought coming across that? I thought, I mean, it was, I thought it was it was well done in a, in a few ways, but it was that um, it did a good job of being. I mean, so it's very clearly like, okay, you are a sick fuck. Um, it didn't. I'm sort as I'm saying this, it reminds me of in The Exorcist, where I think maybe I've only seen that movie like in, in one time. But the my big takeaway from The Exorcist was there's some scene. This can be wildly you know, bleepable, but there's some scene with, with whatever name the girl is. She's like stabbing herself in the vagina with a crucifix. Oh yeah. And she's saying like, let Jesus fuck you. Let Jesus fuck you. Which, and then I'm listening. I'm like, wow, that is, that is so over the top offensive and on every level. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, he's the devil. So yes, the devil's not going to be like, you know, attractively evil. He's just going to be straight up evil. Um, that's what I was like. This obviously wasn't that over the top. But it was just a good idea. Like, we're not trying to mince. It's like, no, he's evil. Like, let's not. 
beat around the bush. He's a psycho and evil. But, you know, Harry does get around it. Like, he does need to be a psycho to explain this. But, uh, but yeah, no, I thought it was, I mean, A, it was, I mean, no, I totally wasn't expecting it. So it was jarring, but it wasn't, it also, I mean, so it wasn't sort of like gratuitous, you know, if he had gotten like all like lewd and describing it or whatever, that would have been too much. But it was this like definitely, you know, an 11 on a scale of one to 10 in terms of, you know, how bad a guy is this, but it was just like, he just dropped it in one sentence and it was hugely unexpected. So it did a, a good job of being unexpected without also, you know, kind of like completely shaking you out of the story. So um, I think it was well, it was, I think that was a well executed little bit of, of plot right there. Um, yeah, I agree. And you're right. And, if it, but if then it was it really wasn't... interesting how it, how it, and then how it led into Harry sort of in like, as he's, he's sort of talking to Draco, trying to like continue the conversation while like thinking in the back of his head, like, what the fuck do I do with this? But that, you know, what he thinks is like, you know, it doesn't, uh, and he says, like, it's too bad. He, he doesn't even have to be a sociopath to explain this behavior. This is just sort of the natural consequence of people living in this amount of, like, privilege and, you know, impunity for any of their actions. Like, not anybody, it's not that so much that anybody would do this, but it doesn't take anybody particularly special or strange to do this. Um, anybody could do this. Which I think the point of that was more that it was sort of a, an indictment of the society that they're in rather than, like, you can't hang it on, you know, Draco's crazy or even that Draco is particularly evil. It's that if you set up this situation, you're going to get people like, you will select four people like this. I think that's a which I thought was really a, and it's funny, good analysis. You know, as we're t- yeah, yeah. yeah. And as we're talking about it, I keep, like, wanting to drop back to words like, you know, psycho or sociopath or whatever. And that's kind of his point. is like, no, he's you know, a person that would have been a completely normal person in every other sense, except that, you know, we created all the right conditions for it. That's sort of like, that was one of the ways that Harry sort of vowed to himself, like, because of this, I'm, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but it's something like, I'm going to take this society apart to its constituent atoms or something like that. Yeah. And he's like, okay, this is fucked up. Yeah. Like, he he says, I'm going to tear apart your pathetic little magical remnant of the dark ages. Uh, yeah. So the, for, for myself, I think it was, it was shocking and it's, it's a good example because Harry was able to casually joke about killing her because in the right mm-hmm. tone, that's funny, right? Like, oh, I'm going to yeah, kill that dude. Like, not this literal. Is, you know, it, it, it's not a joke to be made lightly, but it, in the right circumstances, it's perfectly normal. And then Harry realizes like, oh, exactly one of us was kidding about, you know, pretending or about yeah. threatening to murder this person. Well, that person. was so good about it. It's like, like, theoretic, like they're both in theory, like, you know, I guess theoretically rape is is less awful than murder. Um, but like the one is obviously just like a saying and a joke. And the other one, it's so weirdly specifically evil and very clearly not like a metaphor or just an offhand comment. I reminded there's, I can't remember, it's one of those comedy skit shows they were doing, they were sort of pretending like they were the honeymooners. Um, and one of the big lines from the honeymooners that Jackie Gleason would say, one of these days, Alice, one of these, to the moon, like he's basically... And we'd like, oh, that's funny. What they redid in this show was he's like, one of these days, I'm going to punch you in the face. I think that was he's Louis C.K. on wife. SNL. Was it? it was, I want to say, say it was like The State or something. One of those like, you know, mid-90s. In any case, one of those that, that's been played with a lot. But yeah, yeah it's, it's like, like oh, that thing wife. that we think is, yeah, that thing that we think is so funny, like when you stop to think about it is actually pretty fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, and that was that. That was like his catchphrase was that he was going to beat his wife. Right, and and part of what makes this this line from Draco extra chilling is that he's like, when I'm old enough, I'm going to do it, which means he doesn't he doesn't really get yeah. 
what he's doing. He might have been told who knows how dark his childhood was or whatever, but like mm-hmm. this isn't he, he knows that, oh yeah, I, I when I'm old enough I can I can do this. I could murder her now, but I'll wait till I'm old enough to do something worse. That's a pretty gross thought. And then <laughs> um yeah. it does a good you know, like you, you did a great job explaining I think where the line of thought is supposed to be, but Harry has this line that I liked a lot of right because he seemed like such a normal kid and and he is a normal kid he's just what you'd expect a baseline male child to be like if Darth Vader were his doting father <laughs> yeah if, if you're if you've got that level of evil uh upbringing again we're talking about how he rewards him with ice cream when he's when he's a successfully manipulating punk then yeah you're gonna get this monster and Harry I think well monster yeah it's easy enough to slip into that language but we we keep coming back and this is where Harry ends up and I I think it's the correct way to view it, which is, you know, Draco's, he's, he's a damaged kid, but he's not a, a, a mutant psychopath. He's not an alien, right? Yeah. He's, uh, more importantly... It's totally predictable. Yeah. Not that it necessarily had to come out that way, but you shouldn't be the least bit surprised that Draco is like this. Right. And so, you know, Harry has that thought, note to self, overthrow government of magical Britain at earliest convenience, and then talks about destroying <laughs> the you know, this terrible world that they've built. Yeah. I am curious where this is going to go in terms. So it, and it's, you know, that idea is, is appealing and just feels right. The idea that, you know, he's not crazy. Um, but I want to like, where, where is this going to go? Are we, are we going to call him evil or are we gonna, you know, how, how are we going to look at this in terms of, so, okay, he's not crazy. Then what is he? Um, do we just call that? Cause calling it evil sounds like, you know, an oversimplification as well. Um, that's a good yeah good question so I, I don't go. know what Harry would call it I for me I think of it like unfortunate I guess you know I I listen to and I read a lot of well I used to read more about free will stuff until I came on a good workable approach for myself but like uh Sam Harris uh the one of the he's a author slash philosopher slash podcaster um his go-to example is Uday Hussein one of Saddam's kids who would apparently you know ride around with this gang of thugs and, you know, like break up a wedding, kill the husband, feed the husband to his dogs and rape the wife. And like, you know, this like just the most atrocious thing you can think of. And then Sam is quick to point out. It's like Saddam Hussein was his dad. This guy didn't stand a chance, right? (laughs) Like, of course he's a fucked up person, but you would be a fucked up person too if Saddam Hussein was your dad. Uh, So this is like a smaller version of that. And it's, it's, uh, in a different context, but um, yeah, so... Yeah, I'm curious where we go with this. I, or it, I mean, maybe it's not even going to be a central thing. I don't know. But. Yeah, we'll see. But they do move on, which I like. I guess so there's there's one more thing before they move on to like much happier stuff. They He asks Draco, because I can't remember how blood purism and stuff comes up, but... Uh, well, I guess he... he I think I he's guess tough. It's, it's worth, worth brushing past that. really quick that Harry does manage to save Luna Lovegood. He says that, oh no, I'm... I, oh, yeah. Decided when I learned that it was a girl, I'm going to marry her when I'm older. And then Draco get, does his spit take. And mm-hmm. Harry's just thinking, you know, okay, well, shit, I got to find a way to keep, you know, save her from Draco. And man, I really don't want to throw away my whole world plan and marry this crazy girl. But, you know, this is this is nuts. But So that that was his thinking was like, like it saves to say, because I didn't, st- that didn't strike me as like this terribly serious statement. But that was like, oh, if I say I'm going to marry her, then Draco won't plan on raping her in three years yeah and i guess or whenever one is of the raping age uh, yeah i'm not sure how old you have to be to get married in, <laughs> in the wizarding britain but yeah anyway so uh luna's safe um not a, not a huge point but it's just worth 
I, I want to just point out that it, you know, at least he doesn't, this isn't just abandoned exactly. So, um, then let's see. So blood purism comes up. Um, let's see. Yeah, he, he sort of does like the real quick. He's like, so explain to me. He does. I can't remember the words he puts to it, but it was basically, all right, give me your tired little Nazi inspired. <laughs> yeah. He wants the, he wants the 30 second version just of, find, uh, yeah. the blood purism pitch, which is the standard. Yeah. And it's pretty much the standard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, things were better oh in the God, past and defiling we've been, we've been degrading ever blah, since, blah, blah. which is a really common theme in fantasy uh, stories. It's uh, it's a common theme, I think, in a lot of religious traditions where the elders back in the day who were closest yeah. to God, you know, and the original word knew Fall more about things race. and knowledge is only lost. It's not gained. I think that's Orthodox Judaism, which is how the author was raised. So mm. the... I think you'd recognize that trope when it when it came into play. I don't know. Well, that's true for all of that. I mean, it's the, you know, the fall from grace, the Adam and Eve. Yeah. The you damn kids get off my lawn. <laughs> and then so. it I I really like how it goes from, you know, the big notes in this, you know, the 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 bummer with Ron, the major bummer with Draco, and then on to the really inspiring. This is what um drives harry this is and this is what drives scientists you know if you're if you're a scientist or a science yeah. enthusiast this is what gets you out of bed in the morning this is very carl sagan-esque um he tells draco yeah. you know that that's persuasive it's, it's interesting but i have to correct you on one point uh your information about muggles is a bit out of date we aren't exactly scratching in the dirt anymore and draco's like what what do you mean we he's like the scientists the line of francis bacon and the blood of the enlightenment he's trying to talk in the terms that draco would understand but mm-hmm. um he, he is explaining to draco that like no nah, man muggles aren't just scratching the dirt and wishing they had wands they've got you know they, they've got stuff that keeps your house cold in the summer and warm in the winter and we've got doctors and medicine and uh he's he's trying to think of examples and he's like okay hold on let me let me get to the best example and he points to the moon and he says, have wizards ever been there? <laughs> and Draco's reaction is, no, you, that, what do you mean? You can't apparate to a place you've ever been. And how would you get there in the first place? You can't apparate there. Harry's like, hold on, I can prove this point. And he runs down to his trunk and grabs a book and shows him that picture. Climbs downstairs in his trunk. Yeah, which is just the coolest <laughs> thing. You know, this, this is obviously an awesome purchase. It's already paying off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like like if we were, I'm, and I'm sure the author had to think about this like what are we gonna what was he going to use as the example of like the pinnacle you know accomplishment of science and I think this was a good pick like okay we went went to the moon especially sort of like the sort of pure science you know goal of the, like there's no practical payoff for going to the moon it's purely you know in the name of science. And, so, and, you know, and the really powerful image he brings. So he shows Draco the, the picture of the Earth as taken from the moon. Right. And I think that's good, too, because that's something we can all see. Like, if you say that, we can all see it in our head. Yeah, because we all have. And it's, it's um, one of those things. And that's yeah. what makes me think of Carl Sagan. And it's fair that, you know, the politics at the time, it wasn't just in the name of science. It was also to flex and say, look, we can do this. So you better fuck off. But mm-hmm. um, the what space travel represents to someone who's of the right mind like harry or carl sagan uh is Mm -hmm. this opens up the universe to us and this this is the this is like you said the pinnacle of science and and it's the biggest project humanity's ever undertaken sake it's not in the service of some you know oh we'll make money off of this or it's and so yeah there was the 
the space race thing in the Cold War. But I mean, and to the extent that you think about, you know, going to the moon as a factor of the Cold War, it just sort of detracts from it. Because you don't think like, yeah, we beat the Russians to the moon. That's not what most people <laughs> think in terms of the moon. Yeah. Um, and, but what I like, and there's there's a line in, might have been in the book or in the TV series that Carl Sagan did, Cosmos, where he talks about basically out-of-touch tribes, you know, obviously pre-internet, would have been somewhere in the 70s or 80s, who didn't know who the president of the United States was, because why would they? They're in another part of the world. But they knew of the moon landing. You know, this this is this is information mm-hmm. that had percolated the planet. So when he says that picture, the picture, the one of people in white suits on, you know, the the pitted dry terrain with the earth hanging in the background, um, that is I've thought of ways trying to get that tattooed on me, but I can't think of a good way to represent hmm. that without just doing a, a big splotch That's of true. black. But it's that that is I wonder now, like if in general, is, is the wizarding world supposed to be like so self-involved that they don't even really know about the moon landing? Or is this just that Draco's a dipshit? That's a good point. It's not clear <laughs> at this point whether just because, you know, Draco's a died so, in the wolf like blood, pu- Weasley, blood like, purist who, you know, yeah. his his father probably doesn't lecture him on the accomplishments of muggles, right? Yeah. And like Mr. Weasley was supposed to be like fascinated by things like stick shift, you know? <laughs> so maybe they are like that, you know, uninvolved. <laughs> yeah. I'm, unaware. At this point, I guess we don't know. Um, so Harry is trying to explain to Draco the majesty of what this represents. And he, he explains, you know, like it costs something like a thousand million gallons and took the efforts of more people than live in all of magical Britain. Um, mm. And then there's in italics, Harry's thinking. And when they arrived, they left a plaque that said, we came in peace for all mankind, Though you're not ready to hear those words, Draco. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then of course he asks like, how, how do they do this without wands or magic? Oh, it's a long story. You know, science doesn't work by waving your wand and making the universe do stuff. You have to really get how the universe is, and then you can control it. Um, which, if you're explaining science to an outsider, that's not a bad way to put it. Yeah, that was another quote I pulled out. Yeah, so he's, when he's telling Draco basically like the difference between magic and science, he says, if magic is like casting Imperio on someone to make them do what you want, then science is like knowing them so well that you can convince them it was their own idea all along. I'm like, oh, what a weirdly manipulative lack of human empathy way to look at that, Harry. <laughs> Charitably, <laughs> he's trying to put it in a way that Draco would understand. I can, yeah, okay, sure. Except he doesn't say that out loud, I don't think. Well, oh, maybe that might that might eliminate some of the point, right? And here's how I'm going to manipulate you, right? But yeah, that is that is one way of looking like, at it. That whole explanation, though, maybe because he's big, and I think like his larger point is, you're not you don't have to. It's not magic or science. Like you get science no matter what. So it's like oh, but you could add the other. And he sort of says like oh, if we all forgot about magic, that would be a huge loss because. You know, learning about magic is telling us, you know, something we really, really didn't know about how the universe works. Um, but, you know, you don't you don't give up science to to get magic. And that sort of maybe as we're talking about that made me think like how like even more badass would like Dumbledore be with, you know, a machine gun in either hand. <laughs> it was like, oh, but he's Dumbledore. No, he wouldn't have to like, hold machine guns. He'd just have like a little army of like self-propelled machine guns floating around him while he was also like casting little magic fire spells and stuff. But, have you read that copy pasta you know, about why Harry should have carried a, a pistol? No, I haven't. 
Uh, it's it's several paragraphs long, but I'll I'll send it to you and I'll put it in the, in the notes for this episode. It's just a funny little thing that someone wrote. This wasn't about method rationality. It was just why Ken and Harry would have been better off with a gun. With a gun, and, it, and it's written it's written in that same kind of like you know the the Reddit copy pasta style way of just being really uh-huh. funny. So yeah, without I, I if I tried to recite it, I wouldn't be able to do it justice. I'll just I'll I'll send it to you. But <laughs> they go on to talk about how the power of that it takes to get to the moon to understand and control the universe isn't tied to wands or anything that you can lose. It's something that only you gain. You know, so whereas magic, according to Draco, has been waning since the days of Merlin and Atlantis or whatever, science just gets better. Like, we, 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 our knowledge base grows. And this isn't a muggle thing. It's a human thing. And this is something that Harry, being a, a muggle, or excuse me, by being a wizard, can still do science. And he's kind of a case in point that, no, look, you can control both of these powers at the same time. So... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like that. All, all this spoke well to the, the nerd in me was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, same here. So, and then this part <laughs> and then Draco nodded slowly. You think you can master both arts and add the powers together? And he looks at Harry. Make yourself lord of the two worlds? Harry gave an evil laugh. It seems to come naturally at this point. <laughs> <laughs> But he, this is the, you know, this is the cosmic perspective of, you know, the astronomer, right? Of, look, Draco, you have to realize that Magical Britain is just a square on a much larger game board, a game board that includes places like the moon and the stars, the night sky. And it's, uh, <laughs> there's this line that I like a lot, because he had that with, with McGonagall too, where he, it's not world, dom, uh, world domination, it's world optimization. He tells Draco here. You know, look, I really am a Ravenclaw, not a Slytherin. I, w- I don't want to rule the universe. I just think it could be more sensibly organized. <laughs> um, so, yeah, from there, he's trying to entice Draco into joining his uh, his project of combining the, the magical and the scientific worlds. Yeah, and we hit sort of like a key plot point there that he says, I can't, yeah, I can't remember exactly how he puts it, but he's basically like, oh, if I'm going to teach... If I'm going to teach you, then I want to be teaching you and not Lucius. Um, so it's sort of like he puts that wedge in there, like, oh, if we're going to do this, you can't tell your dad. Um, which seems pretty clear, like, oh, this is setting, you know, important developments to come about this. Right. And of course, Lucius, being cunning, already told Draco. So Draco's like, uh-huh. You know, father says that when someone says that to you, it's never a good sign, ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Draco does say... I've got to go. I've got to go off and think about this. He doesn't turn him down, but he's not ready to, to agree just yet. Uh, I do like, though, that just, of course, Draco would be raised up bringing, you know, Draco, before you go to school, people are going to try and separate us. Don't let them do it. And, mm-hmm. of course, that's, this is the first person Draco's talked to, presumably, since he left his dad's side, and they're already there. But it. I like that we talked about how it was true for both of them. Like, they both knew what the other one was doing, but it worked anyway. Yeah. Like, yeah, Harry knew that Harry knew that Draco was trying to manipulate him with the, the whole reciprocity idea. And Draco knows that Harry's trying to manipulate him by appealing to his, like, greed for power. And it worked on both of them. I guess that's the chapter analysis for this episode. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, the, the this one's a little heavy-handed. I mean, they're not exactly subtle so far, but that's it's yeah. pretty clear where the reciprocity well, it comes in. Yeah, because it's... Yeah, it's. I mean, it was obvious. It's not too. It's not really heavy-handed though, because I don't. It, this that wasn't like the, the the concept of reciprocity. I think was sort of like a framing device, more than. It wasn't like the point of this chapter. I think this 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 sort of beginning of the conflict. I don't know if conflict is even the right word, but this this 
getting into bed, maybe not literally with Draco. Um, Boy who lives gets Draco Malfoy pregnant. (laughs) Oh, that's right. He got got him pregnant. That was kind of, so I I mean, that was just sort of worked as a good like framing device, I think. Yeah, I liked it. Um, And I'm, I'm, Glad that you put it that way. That's that's a, yeah. a good way to put it. And then I really like the way this ended. What was the? Did he call it aftermath or something? Was the was the last part of this that worked? It was very sort of like television like. Where okay, so you know Harry and Draco part ways. Really quick before like, that. Meanwhile, uh, this is the last one before we leave Harry. Two cloaked figures come up with their faces wrapped in winter scarves. Oh yeah. And one says, "Hello, Mister Bronze. Can we interest you in joining the Order of Chaos?" Which, who knows what that means, but, you know, just that's where we leave Harry. Then it does the aftermath. We don't know. Was that a, did we have any kind of tell that that's not Fred and George? Because that sounds like a very Fred and George thing. It does sound like a Fred and George thing, but there's no reason to, there's nothing to confirm or deny that at this point. One way or the other. So, yeah, that that ends that. And is that, that aftermath, is it like, I guess it's like a week or two later or something because they're all at Hogwarts at that point? I think it says at the top, it's that that night. Yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah, and then it says like Draco's basically in his like own personal little room because he's the rich kid that gets his own personal room. Of course he does. Um, and then I, but I like it, it. It played very much like a, like a TV episode or like the you know closing bits to a Marvel movie that is like you know giving you the lead into what the sequel's going to be. Where it's like, you know, and then Draco's writing to his father basically to give him the lowdown on. Um, no, he didn't want it. He wasn't going to tell his father what was going on. It was more like, what if I ran into a guy that said. What was it exactly? How did he put it to... Who called you a flawless instrument of death and said that I was your one weak point. What would you say about him? That's what it is. Yeah. And I thought that was super interesting that that Lucius decides to read that as, oh, well, you must have just met Snape. Well, he says specifically, I would say that you've been so fortunate as to meet someone who enjoys the intimate confidence of our friend and valuable ally, Severus Snape. Oh. Hmm. Because I think in his, uh, oh yeah, so in his letter to his his father, he says, suppose I told you that I met a student at Hogwarts, not already part of our circle of acquaintances, who called you those things. And so make of that what you will. But he, uh, Lord Malfoy reads that as, well, it sounds like, you know, somebody who's a really close friend of Severus Snape. Yeah. I thought that that, that whole scene, I liked how that, like how it closed out the chapter. It worked well. It's just a a way to like close it out, but it was, it, it was just a very familiar, uh, you know, plot advancing technique that worked well. Yeah, it was, um, I liked it. It was fun. And it, it yeah. I can't remember my impression of reading that the first time, probably confusion because we haven't seen Snape yet. And it's not exactly clear that this would be that, right? So let's see. We already sort of did the name game with the title. I think for the next episode, uh, you know, eight has plenty of content to it, but I didn't check how long nine and ten eight. are really short. We should have talked about this before we started recording. We'll do that from now on, but that's what editing is for. Yeah, which is easy for me to say since I'm not doing the editing. That's not too much. For next episode, we're gonna do chapter eight, positive bias. Just eight. And I don't have anything else to sign off on unless you do. That's all, folks. Perfect. Probably copyright infringement. Yeah, we'll see if we can get away with it. <laughs> All right. Well, there All there right, is some discussion of the podcast on Discord. I'm not sure if I'm going to encourage you to join there yet, because right now it's full spoiler. Um, oh, that's true. But we can set up a spoiler-free channel if you'd like. But then I worry about someone, you know, dropping something. Yeah, I should probably stay away. All right. We'll leave you in the dark. But for everyone else, the other podcast that I do, The Bayesian Conspiracy, has 
a Discord, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode. And there's a channel in there for this podcast. So if you want to chat about it there. Um, and I guess, you know, generic thank you to the author, Elias Yudkowsky, for letting us, or not letting us, I didn't ask, but for writing this so we could talk about it. <laughs> and uh, once again, I listened to these chapters. So thanks again to Inyash for doing the audiobook. I probably won't give you a shout out every episode, but everyone should know Inyash did an audiobook for this podcast, and you'd have to be an idiot not to find it because it's on the same feed. So perfect. That's it for me. All righty. See you next time. Cool. And cut.